With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, and welcome to this, the second episode on Air Chief Marshal Fufu. Sorry, sorry, I did it again. I meant the Kingdom of Thailand. In this episode, let's look at the progress of political systems in Thailand post-1925, or lack thereof. We'll understand how the constitutional monarchy is constructed, and have a look at hyper-royalism and the political pressures of today. The contemporary history of Thailand is in stark contrast with the last episode, as it is characterised by high degrees of political instability and volatility. Much like Paraguay, where we observed several successful military coup d'etats, the contemporary history of Thailand is a story of even more, and I don't know to what degree they were successful, but they were all nonetheless significant coups. So let's get back to 1925, and I'd urge you to buckle up because this is a long one. Actually slightly before 1925. At the turn of the 19th century, towards the end of Chulalongkorn or Rama V's reign, Chulalongkorn was coronated in 1873 and on taking the throne of Thailand passed a number of reforms in an attempt to modernise Thailand. These reforms targeted the judiciary, political structures and state finances and did not bode well with the conservatives in Thailand. As a result, they revolted in 1874 in the first of many attempted coups. The revolt was speedily quashed but it did force Chulalongkorn to take a step back and slow down the reform process. He did still manage to rid Thailand of slavery, build a railroad, introduce salaries for public officials and improve education in Thailand, which is why he is an incredibly popular leader. The last part of Rama V's incredible reign that I want to mention before heading into the 20th century is foreign trade. Because through the 19th century, French and British colonisers had become increasingly aggressive with territorial occupation in Southeast Asia. Despite their expansionism, they maintained friendly ties with Thailand, but did become increasingly threatening to Thai sovereignty. Britain had taken control of Myanmar, while France had colonised Vietnam, and Thailand was bang in the middle of the two. In 1893, a brief conflict in Laos was sparked between the French and Thai forces, and Laos was ceded to France. In 1907, Thailand further lost Batambang and Siam Reap, to the French, and Britain was also applying pressure from the Myanmari border. When Vajiravud took over in 1910, he brought with him a strain of anti-Chinese nationalism. For centuries then, Chinese communities had dominated the commercial landscape in Thailand. The Chinese community in Thailand had also been expanding, and by 1910, nearly 10% of the population in Thailand was Chinese. Further, in 1905, 
Thailand was hit by an economic recession that lasted nearly a decade. A combination of these three resulted in an antagonism towards Chinese opium dealers, tax collectors and merchants increasing over the first quarter of the 20th century. Vajiravud also aided Allied forces in World War I and won Thailand favour with both Britain and France and helped Thailand consolidate into a sovereign state. After World War I, King Prajadipok took over and ruled as Rama VII. Due to rumours of an assassination attempt towards his father, he was incredibly cautious of concentrating all administrative powers on his independent person. He therefore chose to delegate responsibility for political decision-making with ministers and created an advisory council to look into the possibility of drafting a constitution. Despite the move to reform the monarchic structure, dissatisfaction among the political elite was growing. This was in a large part due to the global economic recession that followed the First World War. During this period, the price of rice, which formed Thailand's primary export, and was resultantly a massive source of income for Thailand, was dropping sharply. This necessitated several cutbacks in the number of civil servants and military personnel to balance the monarch's budget. And this led to the second, perhaps most significant, of coups that I'm going to talk about today. Because in 1932, a group of civil servants and military officials organised a coup against the ministers of the conservative royal government. It is worth noting that the coup was bloodless and was not directed at the king. The revolters were called the People's Party and called themselves promoters. Just three days after the coup, the military junta put a provisional constitution into effect, and while Prajhadipok had lost his political power, the prestige of the monarchy had been left unimpaired and still intact. A permanent constitution was promulgated slightly after the coup, and provided for a quasi-parliamentary regime, where power was vested in a legislature of which half is elected and the other half appointed. The National Assembly would control the budget and could override a royal veto in some given circumstances. The promoters, though, were incredibly divided in the policy reforms they wanted to instate, and in 1933, the royalists revolted against the promoters, this further drove a wedge of dislike between the two parties. The first parliamentary elections were held in November of 1933, with a paltry voter turnout of just a mere 10%. In 1935, Prajhadipok abdicated without naming a successor, and his nephew, Anand Mahidol, was named Rama VIII. But Anand did not return to the country till 1945. This meant there was a 10-year buffer in which the National Assembly could consolidate power in absence of the royal palace. In 1938, the incumbent Prime Minister, Fanon, retired and was replaced by Phibun on fears that a military dictatorship was about to take over. The influential academic and Phibun's rival, Pridi, took over as finance minister. Phibun's government sold nationalist agenda to the public and changed the country's name to Thailand and Preeti introduced an isolationist economic plan called Thai for Thai. This is important given the foreign policy considerations of the 19th century, in which Thailand was increasingly amenable and antagonistic to Western forces and China respectively. And I'll come to why this is important in a second. In 1940, the term limit for elected officials was increased from 10 to 20 years. 
Pibun acted as a fascist leader through most of the 1940s and was influenced by Mussolini and Rousseau and believed in both a strong state but also valued public opinion. In 1942, he sided with Axis powers of Germany and Japan as Thailand forged closer ties with Japan and antagonized European powers. This is already building into the anti-Chinese narrative that is brought about by nationalist and populist propaganda in 1940s Thailand. At the same time, Thai factions of students began working with the US Office of Strategic Services and Preeti, the finance minister, in staunch defiance of his own prime minister, ran a clandestine cell or an allied movement from within Thailand. As the Axis powers lost, trade with Japan dried up, and in 1944, Pibun was forced out of office by public opinion. Understand just how strange this is, because you have a prime minister who is allying with the Axis powers in World War II, and you have the most influential man in the country, Preeti, the finance minister, who is allying with allied powers in World War II. This infighting is pretty characteristic of the Thailand you're about to see. The ousting of Pibun did not last long though, because he reclaimed power in 1948. There was an interim government for three years, which improved ties with the Allied forces, specifically the United States of America. But they faced pushback from Britain and France, who demanded reparations for the areas they had annexed during the war. Again, note the tension here, because while Thailand was close to the US, other Allied powers, namely Britain and France, did not like them owing to the late half of the 19th century. The reparations they forced the Thai to pay were 1.5 tons of rice to Malaysia, which accounted for nearly 10% of Thailand's annual rice yield. They agreed to pay these reparations, and because of this, public discontentment grew. In 1946, a new constitution was promulgated by Preeti, calling for a bicameral legislature. While Preeti's party, the Constitutional Front, won the upper house, they lost the lower house to the Cooperation Party, and Preeti's reputation took a hit. So much so that he was implicated in the murder of King Rama VIII, who had returned to the country only to be succeeded by his younger brother following his death in 1946. As a result of public discontentment growing, Pibun's military faction regained some stature, reignited a nationalistic fervour, and in 1947 organised another coup. They seized power through an election in 1948 and saw a period of constant revolt ensue for the next three years. Despite the constant revolt, Pibun held power till 1957. Most of this power became nominal as his two second-in-commands were the most powerful men in the country. During his rule, he espoused strong anti-communist agenda and refused to recognize the People's Republic of China. In 1951, there was another coup which forced the reorganization of power through another constitution in 1952. The government thereafter continued an anti-China agenda and imposed export taxes on rice, which saw a shift away from their otherwise free market policies. Thailand joined the Southeast Asian Treaty Organization, or CETO, and became an active ally of the US over this period. Pibun also initiated a push to instate democracy through the 1957 election, which he went on to win. In the aftermath of the election, he was subject to mass protests by university students for mishandling the election and was forced to shelf the idea of democracy. He did, though, still form the new government. In 1958, the officer Sarit, 
who had initiated the coup of 1951, took control of the government. In 1960, he declared yet another interim constitution and started a regime of military dictatorship in the country of Thailand. Due to the presence of his strong leadership, the Sarit government was able to mobilize reforms much more efficiently than the previous factionalized governments were, and in 1961, they sanctioned a series of economic developmental schemes. Sarit restored the stature of the king and reinvigorated the ideals of Buddhism among Thai people. Their Thai anti-communist policies continued, and they founded the Association of South Asia with Malaysia and Philippines. Sarit died in 1963 and was peacefully succeeded by his deputy Thanom, who maintained broadly similar policies, hoping to sustain the economic development and political stability in the country. A new constitution was once again promulgated in 1968, and Thanom's party retained power after a general election. The 1960s saw an economic boom in Thailand, with annual growth rates averaging about 8%. A large part of this was a trickle-down from the other Asian countries and industrial centres doing incredibly well. Their foreign policy saw Thailand align with the US during the Vietnam War, and shortly after that they sought to decrease their dependence on the US. The Thai state still faced constant threats from communist forces in Laos and Malaya, and internally from Thai separatist groups. I'll expand on Thai separatism later. In 1971, Thanom, the Prime Minister, led a coup against his own government to end a three-year experiment with democracy and revert to military dictatorship. Once again, understand how absurd this is, because this is a man who is the constitutional head of a country who just does not like democracy enough and wants to revert to a military dictatorship that he himself had revoked in 1968. So in 71, you're back to square one, you're back to Sadat's military dictatorship. As a result, public resentment for Thanom grew as he announced a fully appointed legislative assembly in 1972 and increased the policing powers of the executive branch. By 1973, Thailand was rife with student protests that demanded the end of the military dictatorship. In October, more than 250,000 protesters rallied in Bangkok before the Democracy Memorial, in the largest protest in Thai history. The very next day, troops opened fire on demonstrators and killed 75, taking siege of Thammasat University. King Bhumibol of a temporarily emasculated monarchy took charge of the situation and tried brokering a compromise. The king appointed Sanya Thamasak as interim prime minister while Thanom was continued to keep charge of the armed forces. Sanya overturned the appointed legislature and held elections in 1957, the results of which were inconclusive, and a total of 42 officially sanctioned parties were in the field. This once again typifies the kinds of political chaos that Thailand in the 20th century was replete with, because 42 officially sanctioned parties in a post-dictatorial regime is absurd for any given hope of consolidating power. The voter turnout, despite 42 officially sanctioned parties, was abysmally low, and there were still large amounts of public cynicism against politicians. In the House, though, 90% of the seats were taken by right-wing or centrist candidates, with a mere 10% going to idealistic reformers. The right-leaning Democratic Party, which is currently the oldest 
preserved party in Thailand formed the government as they were the largest in the right-wing bloc with a shaky majority. The Democratic Party fell to a vote of no confidence within a month of being elected and was replaced by another right-wing leader. In this period, Thailand sought closer ties with neighbouring states and forced the US to pull their military bases out of Thailand with hopes to improve regional alliances. The emphasis of Thai-US relationships thereafter shifted from a military relationship to an economic and technological cooperation. The Thai government also experienced economic shifts due to labour unrest and rising prices. Economic growth could not keep pace with the rising rate of population increase and the rice premium that had helped sustain the economic boom of the 1960s now contributed to the impoverishment of Thai farmers. Maintaining order became incredibly hard due to several small protests and insurgencies in a very, very unstable Thailand. Military forces forced the Prime Minister to resign in 1976 and after a messy election, the political fight between the right and the left reached a bloody climax in October. Hundreds of students who were espousing left-wing reformist agenda were killed in allegations of insulting the Thai royal house on grounds of less majestic, and the right-wing police officers stormed Thammasat University and arrested over a thousand more. The event reinstated a period of mostly military rule under the National Administrative Reform Council, which lasted for six years. A new constitution was established in 1978, which called for a bicameral legislature where the military controlled the appointment of the Senate. Thailand's economy wasn't doing particularly well due to a second oil crisis and uncontrolled inflation causing the urban standard of living to fall. This made people pretty unhappy once again. In 1980, the army commander, General Prem Tinsel Anunda took over. There was another coup in 1981, which Prem somehow survived and held office for eight more long years, surviving the elections of 1983 and 1986. Prem was supported by an accelerating economy, the context of which I'll explain in the next episode. In 1988, Prem lost the election and a new general was appointed as prime minister. Incidentally, he too fell to a coup in 1991, due to a rival military faction who he denied government military contracts to. The new prime minister's short spell reeks of deja vu, because guess what? He adorned the military regime in disguise, angered a population who began protesting, and the king once again had to broker peace. In 1992, the Democratic Party once again came into power. They held power till 1995, why they lost the election to a coalition of conservative provincial parties. A coalition of small regional parties honestly sounds like an administrative recipe for disaster. And that it was. Early elections were called again in 1996, and a new constitution calling for a bicameral, fully elected legislature was promulgated in 97. The Senate had a six-year term and the lower house had a four-year term. In the elections of 2001, the Thai Rak Thai Party, with Thaksin at its helm, came into power and launched a host of populist economic policies. These aimed to increase domestic consumption, had a large debt moratorium for farmers, stimulated rural SMEs, and started a universal healthcare program. These were wildly popular, 
And again, we'll cover the economic implications of these policies in the next episode. There were though policies that Thaksin enacted that weren't quite so popular, as he adopted a near-authoritarian CEO-style approach to governance. He centralized power, human rights in the country deteriorated, and he carried out over 2,000 extrajudicial killings as part of his war on drugs. Public opinion of Thaksin began falling and a group called the People's Alliance of Democracy, or the PAD, started protesting. The country once again slid into a state of political crisis in 2005. Despite the crisis, Thai Rak Thai won a second election. You and I both know what's coming now. Because in 2006, the Thai Red Army staged a bloodless coup d'etat, establishing a junta which annulled the constitution of 1997. The elections in 2007 led to a rebranded Thairak Thai Party as the People's Power Party coming into power. They sought to reform the 2007 constitution and the People's Alliance of Democracy once again revolted and in December 2008, the Constitutional Court dissolved the People's Power Party on grounds of electoral fraud. The new government was formed by the Democratic Party with Abhist Vejajiva as premier. The Thaksin-aligned populist Puth High Party won the 2011 elections for two years of political calm. In 2013, anti-government protests sprung up once again and another premature election through dissolution of parliament was held in 2014. The elections were incredibly rushed, protesters tried to obstruct them and factional violence flared. And I know this seems like a bit of a recurring pattern and theme now and you'd assume the country would learn But no, because in 2014, the Royal Thai Army, under Commander Prayut Chanocha, declared martial law due to political ambiguity, and Prayut assumed power in a coup d'etat. The ruling junta called themselves the National Council for Peace and Order, or the NCPO. The NCPO repealed the existing constitution and promulgated a new one. The military junta was incredibly authoritarian and made the punishments for Les Majeste harsher. They increased internet censorship and militarized the streets, detaining prominent public figures and restricting the freedom of the press. Despite the ban on public gatherings under martial law, protests flared in the face of military authoritarianism. The European Union, the United Nations and several individual countries pressured Thailand to return to democracy calling for an immediate return to constitutional order. Despite the international condemnation, the military rule persisted till as late as 2019, and after repeated postponements, new elections finally took place in March of last year. I could go into detail on any given coup or parliamentary change, but there is a general actor that has been a part of all of them. That is, the royalist alliance between the military the civil bureaucracy and the royal palace, as well as some capital-controlling elite. The alliance played a major role in the coup by Field Marshal Sarit in 1958, the military authoritarian regime that followed Sarit, General Prem in 1980, the coup in 91, the military rule in 2008, and the current Prayut regime. The most significant opposition to this has often been student protests. The big variables in deciding democratic outcomes over the past 50 years have been the sentiments of the middle class, the support of the economic elite, and the role of the monarch. On which note, let's talk about the monarch and how the palace played a role. 
in the coming of the constitutional monarchy from its absolute predecessor, you would have noted the stark contrast in the centrality of the Thai palace. While the prestige of the royal house has remained and less majeste is still active, it does not dictate Thai politics. The most significant royal has been King Bhumibol, who ruled as Rama IX for 70 long years up until 2016. He is the second longest reigning monarch of all time, was served by 30 different prime ministers and became a constant fixture in the political landscape of Thailand, where his approval was necessary for political legitimacy of any given party. His role was revitalised under the Sarit dictatorship and Bhumibol played a key role in the transition to democracy in 1992 and in subsequent conflicts. Despite this, he has always been partial to the military regime and because of Bhumibol's role in brokering deals that favoured the military, students are pretty annoyed with the current monarchy in Thailand. Tragically though, in 2016, King Bhumibol passed away and was succeeded by his son, Prince Vajiralongkorn, who has a far more extravagant lifestyle and is far less popular than his father was. The real controversy in the reign of Rama X came not from King Vajiralongkorn though. It was from his sister, Princess Ubal Ratana, who announced a candidacy for prime ministership in 2019. The 2019 elections were therefore incredibly interesting because a much-loved member of the royal family was running against the incumbent president and military leader Prayut. That said, the king condemned the party for nominating his sister and the party that had nominated his sister was forced to dissolve. The results of the 2019 election were a massive disappointment for the oldest democratic party. Phuth Hai, which were the pro-Thaksin alliance, won the most constituencies, while Palang Pracharat, or the PPRP, with Prayut at its helm, won the popular vote. Despite having less seats than the Puthai, Prayut was named Prime Minister after Puthai was not able to prove parliamentary majority. Note that Parliament is still only semi-elected as per the 2017 constitution. The election of 2019 was far from clean. It was marred with voting irregularities, incredibly clear and distinct geographic splits, and accusations of vote buying. And that brings us to the protests this year. Because in July, the Free Youth Umbrella demanded a resignation of the cabinet, the dissolution of parliament, and the drafting of a new constitution. The protests, of course, started in February, but because of the COVID-19 crisis, were postponed and there was a slight hiatus until in June when a second wave was reignited. In August, over 10,000 people took to the streets of Thailand in a very Hunger Games-style fashion, chanting down with the dictatorship. Even though the Thai government has handled COVID-19 incredibly well, their trade-dependent economy has been battered, which has increased unemployment among graduates and increased dissatisfaction among the general public. But the 2020 protests are a step above what has already happened several times before in this country, because these protests have blatantly called for reforms of the monarchy. And I've mentioned before that less majesty in Thailand is no joke and is accompanied by large prison sentences. So it's testament to just how upset people are that they're willing to be locked away for over a decade of their life to demand political change. They've called for an end of the palace's involvement in politics, a separation of the royal treasury and the crown property bureau, and an end to monarchic propaganda. 
The other thing that makes this year slightly different is that the ruling elite are also more fractionalized than the words were. Because Prayut, remember, had by no means been a clear majority of the 2019 election and won majority vote at just around 30%. The state has of course cracked down on protesters and labeled them dissenters, but the protests are showing no signs of slowing down. And yet, there is more variables in the fray. And an incredibly important one is the South Thailand insurgency. The insurgency has its roots all the way back in the early 20th century when the Patani region became a Thai suzerainty. While the Patani Sultanate was alright being placed under control of Bangkok, the population had a much greater affinity to their Malay neighbours. The Thai government in Bangkok interfered in local matters of what are now Thailand's southernmost provinces. They instituted cultural acts to force the concept of Thainess specifically onto the Patani people. In 1947, Haji Sulong petitioned for the cultural autonomy and cultural rights of Patani people against the forced Thaiification. He was arrested for treason and branded as a separatist. The Patani people were subsequently denied recognition as a culturally separate ethnic minority. The latter half of the 20th century saw a rise of insurgent guerrilla groups and violence picked up after 2001. New groups were more silent and resorted to increasingly violent attacks, as opposed to the more traditional groups that vocalised for change and vocalised their grievances of being a subjugated minority. Some groups are no longer separatist and are led by Salafist hardliners and focus more on their Islamic identity than their Patani ethnicity. In the 21st century, poverty and economic factors also played a role in increasing violence and increasing dissatisfaction among the Patani people. Because increasing percentages of Patani peoples have become impoverished and uneducated due to legislative ignorance and incompetence by the Thai state. Thai counterinsurgency measures did not help, as they cracked down pretty violently and the death toll of the insurgency from just 2004 to 2018 rests at well over 6,000 deaths. There have been human rights abuses from either party and Patani insurgents have become increasingly involved in drug trafficking and have thus also been targeted by the Thai government's war on drugs. In 2005, a National Reconciliation Commission was constructed, but its recommendations were shot down by General Prem on nationalist grounds, which only aggravated the conflict. The largest insurgency groups are the BRNC and the PULO, and the separatist movement is by no means cohesive or homogenous. While reported killings have decreased since 2017, the insurgency is still very much an active thing in South Thailand and requires administrative attention, capital allocation, and systemic change for the sake of Patani communities. If you were to fast forward this episode, I'm pretty certain. All you would hear are the words coup, protest, and new constitution on repeat. The vicious cycle of incredibly short turnover of political systems has seen 12 successful coups promulgate 20 different constitutions in just the past century. Where most military coups lead to dictatorships, Thai military coups have been surprisingly woke, allowing for democracy, then hating democracy, and resorting to yet another coup and yet another dictatorial period. 
We'll talk a bit more about Thailand's international relations in the next episode. I know there's been a lot to unpack, but the Thai constitutional monarchy, ever since its inception in the 1930s, has suffered from a crisis of legitimacy and public support. No government has managed to garner support and no anti-government movement has had a sustainable majority. I would be lying if I told you I knew what will happen next. Although I for one doubt that the monarchy is going to change significantly as a result of the protests. I also doubt that the protests are going to quell anytime soon unless their demands of parliamentary dissolution are met. That said, I do think that the protests need to be a lot more organised in their demands and their outlook to attain any semblance of stability for Thailand in the future. For now, please do subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Matterfile. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.